0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else.
0: And this week we hear from Joan Gable. She's an old friend of mine. She's now the University of Minnesota president, has really had a fascinating career, as you will hear, in the world of education. That's not what she started out to do. And now she's in a really important job, one of the nation's biggest universities. It's statewide. So she gets this view of all these different stakeholders. Check it out. All right. So you've got a new job. A uh, new job. Very exciting. Uh, tell me about it. What have you learned so far?
1: So I've learned that higher ed is in an interesting time, but in many ways it's more. Than ever, if you think about why we're here and what it is we're trying to do, I've learned that um, wearing a coat is enough to cope with the really cold weather. <laughs> it's cold in Minnesota, but you know they make coats, so yeah. that part's good. And I've really learned that I'm really glad I do what I do, just from a selfish point of view. That I made a switch into higher ed a few decades ago, and right. I always wonder, oh, I wonder what would have happened if things had gone a different way. And I'm pretty glad they've gone the way they have.
0: All right, I want to go back to your background in a few minutes, but let's start with the thing you said right at the top, which is. It does feel like we're at this really interesting and really challenging moment for higher education right now, mm-hmm. issues of affordability, issues of diversity, issues of access, all of these things going on. Uh, how would you describe it? How do you rank those challenges?
1: Well, we have the what I would put them in categories. We have the social challenges, which is the idea that especially in public higher education, which is the space that I'm in, we exist in order to serve, we're mission. And so we need to be accessible, and that means we need to be affordable, and we need to be welcoming so that everyone who comes on board has the same chance for success that every other person who comes on board has. So that's one category. And then we have this sort of social uh, value proposition question where some people are really wondering whether we really do – Something that's worth doing, worth paying for, worth spending time on. And then we have the research question for those of us at research institutions where the fact that we engage in scholarship, that we're in large part existing to explore and solve problems and be theoretical and inquire is question valuable as well. And then add a little technology competition, a little literal competition for profits, et cetera. It's a very interesting time.
0: So let's talk about the social value proposition. I mean, let's go right there because there are big existential questions around should kids go and spend four years, especially away from home, out of the job force, maybe learning some things that aren't necessarily exactly applicable. You and I went to liberal arts colleges uh, Mm -hmm. growing up. Uh, What's the case?
1: Well, you could look at it very two-dimensionally that earning potentials. college degree. And that hasn't tapered at all despite all of this conversation. In fact, it has only gotten stronger as a matter of just is it worth the investment of Mm -hmm. time and money? Every indicator from an ROI point of view is yes. But there's also the social – quality that you get from having been on a college campus, what it means to have that network, what it means to have that sense of identity, what it means to fail with some sense of safe space Mm -hmm. and recover, what it is to explore who you are, question things, be challenged. We offer all of that, and we think that makes you better for the totality of your life afterwards, so you're prepared for work, but you're also prepared to think and discern and critically analyze, and we think that's kind of important.
0: Right. All right. Let's go to the mission back. Uh, piece of this. How do you distinguish your mission at University of Minnesota from everybody else?
1: Well, we are the only research university in the state of Minnesota. So we have this very interesting intersection between being the place and also being world class. Mm-hmm. So total sense of place, deep commitment to access, but also very keen on excellence and being a global player in the questions that we explore and the quality of the teaching that we do. And so we think we've really held on to that in a way that a, some of our competitors have not, that we are both accessible and excellent. It's not an either or. And so we commit to the land grant mission that was our founding core set of values over 165 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we do really cutting edge research and launch really innovative programs.
0: So I want to talk about your first, not even year in the job, but you know I follow you on Twitter and you're a political candidate. It. in many ways like you're all over you're Just you did this barnstorming tour it felt like uh, of the state <laughs> what did you Interesting learn choice of words for a land-grant institution
1: <laughs> yes go. well first of all I'm very flattered that you follow me on Twitter <laughs> but that well in Minnesota we have other institutions right. in the state of Minnesota but there's only one big research university so the president of that university is the president of the big Twin Cities campus that everyone thinks of but also of four other campuses around the state and very public position there. So people want to see us. They want to see our teams. They want to see our administrative leadership. They want to see our coaches. I do a lot of things that are all over the place.
0: And so what was the biggest surprise to you as you talked to folks sort of moving around? What was the question that you got that maybe you thought, wow, I did not see that
1: coming? Actually, I, I didn't get questions that we didn't see coming, but I got um, – when you're the, the the game literally for a really interesting state that has a big metropolitan area but also lots of agriculture, still sixth largest food economy in the country and lots of health sciences both in the Twin Cities and then of course we have the Mayo Clinic was how people talk about, well, I'm a fifth generation University of Minnesota right. alum, family member or 100 years ago your ag extension office saved our farm and that farm is now the whatever largest turkey supplier to the entire United States so there's this sort of homespun deep impact but when they talk about what it really was that the university did for them it's really sophisticated and interesting Mm -hmm. and so I Sort of surprised how long that's been going on. How deep the the, the tethers are across the state and right. the country.
0: So let's talk about how you got to this job. You mentioned work in the private sector. I mean, let's go all the way back. You grow up down south. Uh, you sort of make your way into. You go to school up north at Haverford. You get a law degree from University of Georgia, and you're going to be a lawyer, right? I mean, that, that I was, was the a lawyer, plan. Yeah. Yes,
1: I practiced law. Yeah, and I practiced law for a few years. I had my daughter, who is now an adult, who lives in Seattle and um, works for a big coffee company out there. And uh, <laughs> might have heard of it. Might have heard of it, yeah. and yeah. she um, changed my life, as they do. Where I just thought I really want more balance, more time with her, more. Um, ability to do the things on the bucket list that I didn't think I would be able to do. And I worked for a really great law firm and I was very well treated. There was nothing like that, but I just sort of got itchy. I don't know how else to describe it. And so I started asking peers and mentors and friends and faculty friends, you know, after you graduate, the way that relationship changes. And through that networking, I ended up as a candidate for a job as a lawyer on faculty as opposed to a practicing lawyer. And I got that job. And after that, it became sort of traditional junior faculty faculty mid level senior dean provost president. Right. Twenty five years in a nutshell right Right. there. (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: Well and and I do wonder, you know, as you got into into the world of, of academia and you and I both know a lot of people who have who have made that leap even at a young age, it it does feel different, right?
1: Oh, it's quite different (laughs) because you're not really, there's no competition in the same sense. I mean, you're competing to be the smartest, which I guess in many ways we all are, but the smartest in a, did you think of something, explore it, publish it, make a difference with it. Yeah. So there's there's a long game to the work that we do and it's uh, meant to be thoughtful and I really enjoy that very much and that doesn't mean don't need to hand your grades in on time and show up on time and in fact, in many ways, I worked more hours in the day than I did even when I was a junior attorney in a big law firm which is saying something it, it, <laughs> for sure, but it was a different kind of time you know it wasn't this one at your desk grind you know I'm standing up with students they're in my office asking me about what they should do with their their entire academic career, and what does that mean for later, I'm really thinking about a question that I get to write about and answer, and people actually have some interest in what I might right. say about it. And when you make that transition, that's really empowering, very invigorating, and inspiring. And so I really felt like I won the lottery, and I still do.
0: So you get into the world of academia, but how do you, not but, but how do you at that point, as a person, which, which you clearly are, how do you map a, a, a career to some extent?
1: Well, I tell students this and sort of the, a little bit of a do as I say and not as I do, but <laughs> I had plans and none of them are what I'm actually yeah. doing and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lucky that's what happened because what I saw for myself was less than what I'm actually Able to do now, which um, because if I'd said when I was you know in my late twenties and first entered the um, track, as you as we might refer to it in higher ed, I think I'll be the president of a university in a state which at the time I'd never visited. <laughs> that is, you know, one of the legacy public Ivy, original land grant, world class, top ten research institutions. That's my plan. Everybody would have thought, well, I mean.
0: We don't know what you. everybody would have yeah, thought and right. would have
1: sounded like a jerk. So right. um and that's exactly what happened. So, yeah. you know, go figure.
0: Right. Well, and and it feels like to me, knowing you pretty well, that the catalytic moment feels like when you went to Missouri, right? I, I mean, I think th-
1: that's true. Yeah. That
0: so you go to be the dean of the business school at University of Missouri. That's a different sort of stage, a different part of the country. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that decision.
1: So I had been a pretty traditional faculty member, teaching, doing research, going to conferences—the very classic trajectory—and then I thought, well, maybe I could be. Um, Rechallenge, you know, you get ten or twelve years in on a career, and so I took on some administrative work as a department chair, and then the phone started ringing, and I got this job at the University of Missouri as the dean of the business school, and it seemed like on paper a logical next step, but for me, professionally and really personally too, it was sort of the blossom moment where I didn't realize how much bigger a yeah. job. It was how much more outward facing it right. was, representative, interdisciplinary, industry partners, legislative partners, donors and philanthropy to that side of the institution. And I was very challenged, yeah. w- maybe even too challenged in the beginning, but you know, sink or swim, unfortunately we swam.
0: Right. And because all of a sudden you have this sense of this web of stakeholders, right? That That's right. Don't always and often don't jive, right? And 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 you're the referee, uh, right in the middle, and also a sort of up and coming school, but you know, sort of fighting for its place, right?
1: Right. So, in addition to being a referee, you're also a convener, yeah, which is really fun. And you can also be the ideator as long as you let everyone else figure out how it was really their idea. And, and that's uh, a good skill there's I mean some of the time um, but you're at you you're supposed to leave from behind in higher ed you know the, the real creativity happens with students and faculty and that's really true and it has been one of the gifts of who you associate yourself with all these incredibly smart people but you can have an idea and if there's buy-in you can get out of the way and it'll happen and right. it's a magical thing
0: well and so that's a big jump arguably the next jump is even Bigger. I mean, I remember when you texted me and said, you know, I'm going to University of South Carolina. That's a massive job.
1: That's a massive job. So I was the provost and no one knows what the provost does and I did for several years and right. I'm still – Challenge to articulate it, but you're sort of everything except the buildings and the police officers yeah, this is sort of how I right. describe it. Everything that's taught, everything that's You're essentially that's the number two, right? You're the number two yeah. of this really complex matrixed organization. You have students and all of their needs, and obviously that's the cornerstone, faculty and all of their needs, all of the accreditation. Every time a degree is offered, you've essentially signed off on it. Every time anything is published in a manner of speaking, you've signed off on it. Budgets, which are really interesting right now. Lots of legislative engagement if you're at a public. So that was a big leap. Uh, that was really um, the most intellectually expanding right. work that I'd done up to that point.
0: And you head back to the South, you know, where yes. you lived for for a long time. So that felt pretty good. And then you get this call to to at least be considered for University of Minnesota. What's the thought process there?
1: Well, provost job is an inward facing job. There, There is the good fortune if you work for someone like who I worked for, that you get to do some of the work that faces outward if that's your interest. Yeah. And as a dean and as a former dean, I did enjoy the outward facing piece and I was very lucky to be able to do it. But what you realize um, after a few years, some people do the provost work for decades. Right. But most of us, either you say, OK, I'm doing this in service to the institution because it's a bit of a, it's a really big and hard job, interesting, hard, or you say, all right, I want to face outward again. And that's really where I was.
0: Right. So what was it that intrigued you most about University of Minnesota before you got there?
1: I think what I liked the most was how deep the tie to the state is and that it's a state that believes in education. There's a lot of sort of gritty, bootstrapped, Innovation that's happened there. There are 17 Fortune 500 companies right. in the Twin Cities, most of which were founded by people from their homegrown, dug up out of the earth, literally out of agricultural beginnings or innovations and in technologies that were inspired by. And the university sits right in the center of that. So if you think about wanting to be at core Higher ed and what it means to be at this level as an educated person, and wanting to be in an innovative space, I, I challenge you to find anything better.
0: So let's talk about that business center that you have there in the in the Twin Cities because I do think it goes underappreciated and, and overlooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we fly back and forth, as That's they right. say, mm-hmm. uh, between the coasts, especially given your background, having run a business school. How does that fit into your strategy for the university?
1: Well, in many ways, who our neighbors are is one of our biggest distinctions. We have some research streams in which we are the best, lots of high rankings that we could cite as a competitive advantage if we were going to use language like that. Universities often don't, but if we were. But our main distinction is that we're a research institution, but we sit in a corporate Right. center. So they, corporations have their own R&D that we're able to participate in. They see things um, where the where the cutting edge is, where the leading edge is from a different point of view. We can be synergistic and conversational about that and that can inspire the research questions. Our students can intern right. all day every day and have applied experiences almost irregardless of their actual program of study. We have uh, the, the, the ability to feed their workforce needs which are significant and and we can really be a partner in a way that is anchored because the companies are anchored there and are committed there, but they're global companies. So if we want to be anchored and be global, we're in good company. Right?
0: Tell me about uh, alumni. Uh, how do you engage with them? Because again, now that you're in the top, top job, I'm sure everybody feels very uh, comfortable sharing their opinion uh, with you. Uh, <laughs> and we'll get to the football team in a second. But you know, in terms of giving you advice on how to do this job – Tell me about sort of the the fabric of the particular alumni for this institution.
1: Well, they love the place. I've met fifth-generation gophers and also from our other campuses, multi-multi-generation deep ties. It's it's a member of the family. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes hard to relate to or understand if you don't have that school in your family that everyone went to. And of course, we have plenty of families where people went to lots of different schools and they love it too. But for the people who are from there or who have real ties there over time like that, they think that it's sitting at the Table with them, right? And so they want to advise it, tell it what to do. They want it to to be this this thing that they see it as as it's discussed at the dinner table. And I am in many ways for for a lot of people the personification of that or the embodiment of that. And so it's a it's a it's a it has two sides. You know, sometimes people are um, really opinionated, but I think that's true for anyone in a leadership position. You know, people who buy your product or. subscribe to your service are going to have an opinion about it, just like they do about education. But there are a lot of people who come up and thank me for things that I had nothing to do with. And there's a lot of warmth, really deep warmth too, that I'm very happy to receive.
0: Well, it did sound like just from reading a bit about some of your early interactions, and and I know you well enough to know that this is true. I mean, part of what you had to do was, you know, sort of come in and disarm a little bit, right? You're coming in, you don't have any ties Mm -hmm. uh, to the state or the the school. Uh, uh, stylistically, how was that?
1: It's been really fun, actually. And I didn't know how that would go because when you work at a public institution, especially one of the legacy ones that's been around for nearly two centuries, people want you to be connected to it like yeah. they are. And it's, and they think you may not know how to lead it or participate in it. If you, um, that's me, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, if you, uh, aren't from there. So people want you to be from there or be an alum or have a family member who went there. And if you aren't and I'm not, then they they want to they wait and withhold yeah. judgment until they can see that you care about it, get it and appreciate it for what it is. But the good news is, I care about it. I think I get it and I definitely appreciate it for what it is.
0: I want to end the conversation on on a couple notes. I mean, one is to talk about, you know, this whole notion of affordability and affording college. It feels so expensive. As someone who has teenagers and and you Mm -hmm. have been in this, you were in it, you're still in it in terms of thinking about your own kids. Why is college so expensive?
1: Well, it's actually, I think it's not as expensive as we think it is. When you look at the return on the investment, Mm -hmm. it's just that it's more expensive than it used to be. I think that's the rubric that has us so thrown. And I am a tuition paying parent right now at this moment and I have many years to go and I myself took out loans to go to school. So this is real for me. I'm not sitting in an ivory tower on this issue. (laughs) But things have gotten more expensive. Utilities go up. Cost of construction goes up. Payroll goes up. Things that go up everywhere go up for us too. We're not immune from that. And at Publix, state support has gone down. Yeah, And you look at the recession and you see the intersection between the decline in state support and the increase in tuition at the public's. But the big thing that has gone up in the last couple of generational cycles is what we call student support services. So when you and I were in school, someone might have helped us pick our classes, right. and that's about it. I mean, I sprained my ankle when I was in college. I had to leave campus to get medical care. Um, if you needed counseling, you went down the street to find a psychiatrist or a psychologist. If you wanted to find a job uh, where I went to school at the time, you um, might look through sort of a, a mailbox area of, of companies that had expressed interest. There's no such thing as a career fair yeah. in those days. And that wasn't all that long ago in the grand scheme. And so Thank- – now-
0: Saying that. Thank you.
1: Yes, I'll say that to myself <laughs> as often as I can. But now we have professional masters or doctorally yeah. educated staff that get these kids through and it's expensive, but what do you get for that investment? Graduation rates nationally, while there's still headroom and work to do, have gone up dramatically. We're dealing with a lot of mental health with this generation of students, and we need to meet them where they are and serve them. If they're going to come in and study, we want them to graduate and be prepared. And we're a part of that um, fabric that takes care of that for them, tries to make sure that 18 to 20. two-year-olds are successful. And we look at the research impact of what we do, especially at universities like ours. We're generating over, well, nearly a billion dollars in funded research. So it's a money in, money out proposition. You invest and you get a higher quality product.
0: All right. We got to talk about football. Yes, You were working in the SEC before. They take their football seriously in the Big Ten would say they take it just as seriously. And you guys had to use a technical term, just a heck of a season uh, for your inaugural Mm -hmm. uh, football season. Tell me what that was like.
1: Well, it was really fun. (laughs) It's really fun. So there's nothing like being underestimated and then exceeding expectations. So that's just a really fun journey to be on. But you know, there's an adage in higher ed uh, administration that it's often athletics that can be, the, the in an 80-20 rule, the thing that takes up the bulk of your time, and that's generally not considered a good thing right. because it can be a difficulty with how well your team is doing that can suck all of the energy out of the institution that's otherwise doing really good work teaching and researching. But in our case this year, what we had was the exact opposite, where we had this unexpectedly good season to the outside world, not to the coach and the right. athletic director and the players they were expecting a good season that's what they planned for that's how they strategize that's how they build a culture and that's what they do but for our fan base which is the entire state and often people outside of the state it was just a blast and it was really um sort of pure and you know wholesome there was no icky call that ruined a game there was no um really devastating injury that broke your heart it was just fun good competition that we won more than we didn't. And it was a great run.
0: Well, and underneath it all was this whole notion of team and the culture of the team. I mean, it feels like it's reflective uh, of the university. It feels like PJ Fleck has really sort of refracted and reflected something that is underneath this culture that that you have at the school this row the boat you know kind of yes. chant that that everybody does
1: yes he has done that and, and then behind the scenes of course is also the athletic director yeah. mark Coyle, who's really amazing and also spent time in the sec but that's really the idea is that the university of minnesota state of minnesota has this really delicate but true balance between being wholesome and being really innovative and excellent and the team and gritty
0: right i mean there was a grit yes. to the team mm-hmm. it and felt like this year
1: i think so too and where they they never gave up and they didn't listen to the distraction and and they they didn't get everything they wanted every single time but they were able to reframe yeah and Uh, the coach really channels that. He is what we would call a culture coach. So yes, you work on skills, and yes, you work on technical prowess, but you really work on mindset. And it's kind of an amazing thing to watch. It's an incredible leadership skill.
0: And that was Joan Gable. She is the president of the University of Minnesota. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be
1: sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser, And
0: I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg.